Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Four weeks until Election Day. This half hour, we continue our series of conversations with Iowa congressional candidates. All of Iowa's major party congressional candidates have been invited to share their views here on River to River. Joining us this half hour, Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Mike Franken. He's a retired Navy admiral from Sioux City. He's challenging seven-term incumbent Republican Charles Grassley. Mike Franken, welcome to our, our studio and Thanks, our program. Ben. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. Thank you. Note to our listeners, due to scheduling issues, this conversation recorded earlier today, Tuesday, October 11th. Nevertheless, we have a few listener questions submitted via email. We'll hope to sprinkle in this conversation over the next few minutes. Mike Franken, you have said the U.S. Senate should codify Roe v. Wade. This is the landmark 1973 uh, Supreme Court decision uh, which ruled the U.S. Constitution conferred the right to have an abortion. You were asked recently how you would define viability, which was part of the ruling, and you responded, we shouldn't have the government stepping in to determine when viability exists. The doctor knows this. The woman knows this. This is not something for government to step in and make those determinations. How would you protect abortion rights at a federal level should you be elected? Well, the codification, I think, is step number one. Uh, and, and regarding where to draw the line has been a, uh, the primary dissension regarding this topic. And, and, I, don't, and I honestly believe that as, as, the, as the pregnancy is, progresses— uh, and this is generally in 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 ninety nine hundred percent of the cases, this child is wanted. But later in the pregnancy, when maladies exist and mother's uh, health is at is at risk, uh, child development issues um, suggest that the child child will not survive. That this is not a time for the government to have rules and regulations associated with when, if, how. Uh, and have a lawyer or, or certainly have a, uh, a government dictum to stand in the way of, of what has to happen. And uh, so in my sense, writing this in a codification uh, and not having the state from state and having varying degrees on, on a woman's right, and this is really a, what I view as a, as a civil right of an individual, and why we have principally men making these decisions, which is entirely a woman's health uh, decision, um, has always been a, somewhat of a paradox for me, and I, and I disagree with it, and I would write it into law that this is something that is a, uh, for a woman and her, and her care provider to make these dis- decisions on when or if abortion has to occur. Mm-hmm. A related email from one of our listeners, Dirk, he asks, would you be willing to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate or expand the Supreme Court to protect abortion rights? Dirk wants to know. Yeah, I'm not a fan at this stage. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I'm, a, I'm an engineer and a physicist type of person, mil- military officer, um, and somebody from you know, rural Iowa, rural sensibilities and the like. I don't think expanding the court is the answer. Um, and I do believe, though, we'll be living with what is the manifestation of Chuck Grassley's court for a long time, uh, which is, uh, I think, demonstrably unfortunate. 
but um, uh, that too will pass over time. And and yes, uh, if we need to set aside a filibuster for the things which the Supreme Court are doing and using the uh, the legalistic mumbo jumbo, frankly, of uh, justifications. Um, I think that's necessary. And, you know, frankly, the filibuster uh, was put into place, and there's varying ways to do this. I mean, we can do a, a cascading vote from 60 to 57 to 54 and use progressively more um, floor time to make that happen. Uh, we can go back to having an individual stand there and talk ad nauseum. Uh, there's other ways to, to do this. But the filibuster has a manner in which it ensures the minority can dictate too much, too, too frequently, and too many de- divisive issues. And the divisive issues are not just women's health or, uh, or immigration. They're, 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 they're many uh, and manifold. So we need to do something about this because the, the blockages of action affect this nation negatively, and we need to move forward. Culture, the desires of people are leaving behind, are being, are being um, stretched by the judiciary, which is holding us uh, back. And certainly, we must say that the many elements of the Republican Party are trying to backslide. Backsliding is something that's in the 1950-ish perspective on individual rights, um, environmental policy, and a host of other issues. Mike Franken, a former campaign staffer of yours, alleged that you kissed her without her permission after a meeting. A police report was filed, but the case was closed without filing any charges. These allegations first reported by Iowa Field Report. That's a Republican-aligned blog. Uh, Your accuser says the kiss wasn't sexual, was not sexual. There was no intent to harm. But there is a dispute about who requested the meeting. And while you have said this didn't happen, your accuser continues to insist that it did. Now, all of this prompts a question from one of our listeners via email. Leslie in Waterloo writes the following. Mr. Franken, I desperately want to vote for you. I do not want Grassley to win. I am a registered independent, but I almost always vote Democratic. However, I am forced to pause and think about the allegations. I understand the police closed the case. However, I don't want to be a hypocrite and only, quote, believe the woman when the allegations are brought against a Republican. So what will you do, she asks, to resolve this issue in voters' minds and make sure the rights and voices of women who are sexually harassed are respected and heard? From Leslie. Well, I I understand Leslie's uh, perspective entirely, and it's uh, it's certainly troubling to me as well. You know, so I have a 40-year history uh, in of, of of being a a broad-minded individual in large or, large and small organizations. I'm the youngest uh, um, youngest kid of nine and six sisters. Grew up with them. Um, I'm a father to a daughter and a son and a husband of uh, 33 years. So I have been part and parcel. I have been ingrained with. Uh, equality and and uh, and and have have a zero tolerance zero tolerance of uh, gender based crime gender based uh, harassment uh, in my entire history ne- nothing but uh, this situation uh, and why it was filed and and the like that my accuser must answer 
uh, but it the 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 grab and the kiss did not happen, uh, and uh, and I and I'm I was aghast when I found out that a file that a, that a, a report was filed, and the fact that the the county attorney and the police both found it entirely unfounded. Uh, I would hope that that would be settling enough. I don't know what else to say. Mm-hmm. But I guess the question here too is. When do we believe women who make these kinds of complaints in their workplaces or or raise these kinds of allegations? Well, yeah, I, I, that that's this is this is an ongoing issue. We had this in the military. You can imagine. Uh, I don't know that answer. Um, I, I I believe everything has to be thoroughly investigated, uh, and the timelines associated with it, and the whens, what, ifs, and and possibilities. I don't know what to say in this issue. Uh, former campaign staffer, uh, not my campaign manager, so a lot of inaccuracies in it. Uh, and and it, and it was a it was a late afternoon event at a uh, eating place that we met. Me trying to help her. It's as simple as that. And a nominal um, meeting, and we went our separate ways. And I went to the next staff uh, staff event that evening, and that was the end, that was the end of it. Hmm. I can't. I don't know what else to say. Uh, whether axes to grind or what, I don't know. And I'm moving on. Uh, frankly, I'm going up against Chuck Grassley, and I have a reputation, uh, and I have a large friends network and people that know me intimately. Uh, and, uh, you know, my job is to win this and my job is to treat everyone the same, regardless of religion, color, place of origin, primary language, gender. And that's my, my, my mantra. Now, my opponent, Chuck Grassley, has a substantially different perspective and history. Our first discussion regarding, uh, abortion, this is his issue. Since 1972, he has unsheathed his sword on this issue. Uh, women's rights, uh, varying disparities of income, uh, the evacuation of uh, the new set of farmers due to the monopolistic and uh, vertically integrated big industries. I mean, this is him changing the scope of America. Multiple times voting against the Violence Against Women Act. I just got to ask you know, Leslie this question. All right, Leslie, I'm sorry that this that my reputation's been sullied with this. I don't know what else to say other than to move forward and rest on my reputation and those people who know me very, very well, including the past people that have been working for me in the um, in political campaigns. If you've just joined us, uh, my guest this half hour recorded earlier today, Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Mike Franken. Uh, Mr. Franken, a number of other issues to get to. Inflation, uh, a major concern for voters this election. Senator Grassley has an ad which features a clip of you saying in part that, uh, quote, our senators have no role in that whatsoever, referring to inflation. What are your plans to address inflation and and higher costs facing consumers in the Senate? Should you be elected? Yeah, I love it that Senator Grassley brings this up. Since Since he's been in elected office for 63 years... Last I checked, I'm not in elected office, 
My comment, of course, was taken out of context. This is what they do. Every one of those little quips he puts in his hit ads. I'm the first candidate he's ever gone against that he's had expressly hit ads on. This is interesting. Why? Because he has to. He has nothing positive to say to further his career. And that's why his likability is below 50%. So he comes after me with this event. There's nothing right now as senator, there's no measure you can pass right now that'll change the, this, this uh, where we are with inflation, 8%. It doesn't exist. Now, there's a whole bunch of prior decisions that should have been made. And Chuck Grassley was central to every one of those decisions. Number one, offloading uh, and offshoring of manufacturing complexes in America, and even giving tax breaks to industry to move offshore. And he was, he was very much part of this. Uh, secondly, immigration. We don't have enough workforces in Iowa. I'm going to speak to uh, Iowa Business Council after this, and we have a very low, int- a very low unemployment rate, we have 76,000 fewer employee, employee, uh, workers in the state of Iowa since pre-pandemic. So we, we don't have any flexibility in the workforce. And yet the Trump administration stopped immigration in essence, a tenfold reduction. So we're living the effects of not having the workforce, not having the, the manufacturing, the supply chain that we can dictate here. Uh, and having issues with Ukraine and others that are that are inflationary with with uh, with energy, and these are all issues that Chuck Grassley is part of. To blame me is almost comical. Uh, so what you need to do? We need to hold corporations principally for excessive profits. Look at the quarterly, the yearly reports in industry. Everyone, record profits, record profits. Energy companies that have more stock buyback money spent and executive compensation than they have done for furthering their business model. This is a corporate issue. This is a good governance issue, and it's a and it's a prior decision uh, issue made by Chuck Grassley and his and those of his ilk, not by me, a former naval naval officer trying to beat him and add some sensibility in this office. Mike Franken, um, as I'm sure you're well aware, the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, planning to hold another hearing this week on Thursday. We know that a significant number of people are either not paying attention to the committee's investigation or don't believe in its work. What would you do as a U.S. senator to ensure confidence in the committee's eventual findings, especially among supporters of the former president who are not likely to be supporters of yours? Yeah, so I would I would bring the lens of this issue out very, very broadly. And let's look what's happening in Ukraine today. Now, every indication is in the early in the Trump uh, years, including his tweets, his plentiful and fast tweets, were part of where we are with our relationship with Putin. And this business about this would have never happened in Trump uh, regime is nonsense. I have spent a lot of time in my life in that area of the world, starting with the cooperative threat reduction in the 90s, the uh, conventional arms reduction work in east of the Urals, Kazakhstan, et cetera, energy issues all throughout the Middle East. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't know where these countries are. All he knows is how to polish his apple uh, and make him enrich himself 
with the despots and the autocrats overseas. But specifically to January 6th and what we're dealing with today in the aftermath. Yeah, well, we've, so we've, we've developed this. We've developed this. We don't believe the U.S. government. But this is the reason I'm, I'm running for this office. I have defended the rights uh, and American way of life for almost 40 years and I'm not like Chuck Grassley who complains that he missed a family reunion on a Saturday. I missed years of being gone on deployments. I spent more time in combat than the, all of the, Repu- the Republicans combined. So I know what's at risk here. We have, we've cultivated in this country, whether it was an underlying darkness or not, of this group that thinks that government is the enemy. They're not the enemy. We've had a cadre of Americans that were stirred up into a frenzy that attacked the good governance, the very nature of democracy. And now they're doing it with voting rights. We must find and investigate and prosecute all that is wrong that happened on the January 6th. Mm-hmm. Given that there seems to be a very real threat of violence. If, for example, let's say the Department of Justice launches a criminal investigation into former President Trump's actions surrounding January 6th, does it make sense to you to pursue an investigation? Um, why or why not? I know the Department of Justice is weighing this. We can speculate on that. Sure. Not, not only does it make sense, it's a necessity. You must come clean. You must come clean. And uh, if this is uh, these this this rot and this lack of reputation. I mean, we are the great experiment in democracy, and we've had this bad experience where certainly laws were broken, lives were taken. Uh, there there were undercurrents associated with what happens next. There was a gallows erected on the Capitol lawn. We had we had close calls of elected leadership's death. And certainly, the, certainly that would have been gone, gone badly. We can't brush this away. The instigators of this crime need to be hold, held to account. And it shouldn't just be the, the, the foot soldiers that, that are getting their sentences by in federal court. This needs to be the leadership. Always go after the head of the cartel. Final few minutes with uh, Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Mike Franken on this edition of River to River. You mentioned Ukraine. Let's talk about that. The past two weeks have seen, uh, Mike Franken, a significant escalation in the war in Ukraine. Both you and Senator Grassley agree that U.S. military support of Ukraine is critical. At this juncture, what should be done at this point to support Ukraine, given the escalation? Well, we we perhaps should have begun a training and outfitting with the like-minded nations earlier, but we didn't think that uh, Vladimir the Impaler would have done would have gone through with this. But the fact that he did, uh, we need to provide them the necessary means to defend themselves. Listen, this is not going to go away. Uh, and here in Iowa and elsewhere, Kansas, where we can grow different assortment of crops, we will have to augment that which is not coming out of Ukraine. The badness in the world's food supply is yet to be rec- yet to be recognized. Uh, and so, so we've got a role here. We also have a role to ensure that a democracy is not rolled over by an autocrat. This will not go well, folks. And, and uh, Vladimir Putin tells the world exactly what he's going to do. 
and the the attacks on our air traffic control systems in the United States yesterday is only the first. He's not going to relent. This has to be the the, the nucleus of this struggle has to be Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are doing a good job to of 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 doing what's right in the world order, um, and we need to outfit them accordingly. And in the end, where they're going to need a Marshall Plan to help rebuild themselves. Mm-hmm. I wanted to touch on the southern border in the uh, f- final minutes of our conversation, Mike Franken. Recently, the U.S. reached two million migrants arrested this year at our southern border. Uh, that's the most ever. Almost everyone in Congress thinks the immigration system in the U.S. is broken. That's been the case for many years. Each party blaming the other. How do we solve the root causes of that are driving migration to the U.S., people fleeing violence, the horrible economic conditions in their home countries. What's the solution to getting both parties on board in a sufficient number to, to have a consensus? Well, firstly, let's be happy we still have a country where people want to come to. Let's, let's, be, let's be happy we still have a reputation where people want to, want, to, want to do the American dream. I'm not so sure many people in the Republican Party want to, want to maintain that. Uh, I think we now ought to provide a welcoming atmosphere for immigrants. And matter of fact, Iowa, of all places, need needs immigrants. We would have lost population without them. So here's the thing. This Senate, which was completely together a mere 20 years ago, is now completely broken up. And the leadership that exists in the Senate today, to include Chuck Grassley, are the ones that led us astray. And Chuck Grassley has been quite the uh, the party hack uh, in the last 15 years and has uh, and could have been a leader in immigration and should be from the state of Iowa most demanding of of of, of the of basic uh, an agreement bipartisan agreement and we were almost there in 2000 what was it 13 Thir- 2013 yeah. yeah we were almost there at 85% solution i'm sure mm-hmm. and i and i worked for ted kennedy in the 90s as a staffer in the military and the thing to do is to just get it done and when you don't have a an agreement, when you don't come to a to a uh, uh, to to a standard that both sides to it can agree with, the wor- the, re- the rest of the nation suffers. Mm-hmm. And this is what's happening. Chuck Grassley should provide a little leadership. He's the most senior person there. We only have thirty seconds left. What about those very concerned with border security, given what's happening on our southern border? Well, the fact that we arrested three million sounds like we pretty have pretty two, good security. Two, two million. Two million. Yes, and most of those people were. Uh, turned away and uh, or waiting for asylum. Let, let's let's triple, quadruple the number of immigration attorneys and let's provide a better uh, sourcing uh, and more assistance to ensure the standard of living in, in the countries from which they come. I have a lot of experience in this in Africa and in Asia. So we can do better and we shouldn't fight. And Chuck Grassley doesn't have the leadership to do this. I do. Okay, U.S. Um, is Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Mike Franken in our studio recorded earlier this morning. Uh, Mike Franken, thank you for this conversation. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. Thanks, y'all. River to River continues after a short break. I'm Ben Kiefer. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, 
fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The U.S. Supreme Court has just started its new term. It's the first term in its history with a black woman sitting on the high court, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. So this half hour, we thought it would be a good opportunity to listen back to a conversation I had with presidential historian Tim Walsh that focused on historic Supreme Court firsts. This conversation first aired back in early February, and that was when President Biden announced he would nominate a black woman to fill the vacant seat, but had not yet named Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Tim Walsh is Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. I began by asking him to put the appointment of a black woman to the high court in historical context, a history that had seen a total of 115 justices serving the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, certainty, I suppose, if you look back on the history of the court, is that in all likelihood, if you come up with any name, it's probably going to be a white male, uh, and probably a white male Protestant of Northern European heritage. That is 108 of those 115 appointees to the court uh, have uh, been white men, uh, most of those Protestants, uh, most of them from the east coast of the United States, relatively few from west of the Mississippi, so that when we talk about diversity, most people think of ethnicity or race or gender, but the history of the court is really a history of white men from different parts of the country, with presidents at first, and then by that I mean 19, uh, 1789, really up well into the 20th century, being more concerned about which states these justices came from, because initially, that is until uh, the later part of the 19th century, Supreme Court justices really were, were working judges in different parts of their, their region or district, and so they had to travel regularly on a circuit. You know, we have circuit courts, and so they rode the circuit uh, hearing cases. So you had to make sure that the Northeast was represented, and of course the South was represented. And because justices are, of course, appointed by presidents and approved by the Senate, it's a political action, and so therefore you want to make sure that you balance the court philosophically. But as I say, it's, it's predominantly white men of uh, Northern European heritage, uh, usually Protestants. You have a few Catholics in the 19th century. There were three uh, appointed in the 19th century. But it's here in the 20th century, really beginning in the 1930s, that uh, presidents begin to say that the court should look like the country. Well, the country was becoming more ethnic. Uh, women uh, by the 1930s, of course, had the vote. Uh, uh, people of color were speaking up. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and so forth were speaking up. And so what you have is an effort to at least consider the possibility of people other than these white men serving on the court. Eventually... Uh, even after some false starts, there were several uh, men of color considered uh, for the court, even in the 1940s and the 19th, early 1960s. But it's not until 1967 that you have Lyndon Johnson appointing Thurgood Marshall uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, th that was 
a remarkable appointment. I mean, uh, there, clearly we were in the midst of the Civil Rights Revolution. It made a lot of sense to Lyndon Johnson. He very much wanted to make sure that people of color were represented on the court. And so he made the nomination. And uh, Marshall, it was really only one of two. Clarence uh, Thomas succeeded him. Uh, and so those have been the only two men of color or people of color on the court. Mm-hmm. So Joe Biden, in appointing an African-American or a, color, a woman of color to the court, would be making a, a, a third appointment, uh, and then only the sixth woman on the court, too. So uh, that's kind of a twofer if he does choose to appoint a, a black woman to the court. Let's go back with some archive audio from the moment you mentioned the uh, announcement by Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, in 1967. Uh, this is a, some interesting audio to to nominate the first uh, black uh, American to the highest court. Pay attention, and I'd like your comment on this too, um, uh, Tim. Uh, we will hear in the middle of this sort of newsreel-sounding clip, um, we'll hear President Johnson speaking then. Um, you can decide whether he's mumbling or not or <laughs> how he's mm. speaking but but anyway the 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 announcer the news voice here the the uh, wordage that this person mm-hmm. uh, uses let's go back to 1967 here it is historians will note this hour at the white house in a rose garden ceremony a 58 year old great grandson of a slave is nominated by president johnson to be a supreme court justice He is Solicitor General Thurgood Marshall, acknowledged the best-known Negro lawyer of the century. The president also calls his nominee best qualified. I have just talked to the Chief Justice and informed him that I shall send to the Senate this afternoon the nomination of Mr. Thurgood Marshall, Solicitor General, to the position of Associate Justice Supreme Court made vacant by the resignation of Justice Tom C. Clark of Texas. Thus, the highest court in the land, with the vacancy owing to the stepping down of Justice Clark, has named to its august body Thurgood Marshall, the first of his race so honored. News announcement from 1967, uh, jumping out at me, the best-known Negro lawyer of the century uh, and the, the first of his race so honored. Comment on that, Tim. Well, it, it, it's that, even listening to the music, because it's very much of a newsreel kind of breathless uh, appointment, um, the, the, the effort on Lyndon Johnson's part, and of course in that time frame where we were trying to break down racial barriers, the idea was that Thurgood Marshall would be kind of a role model and perhaps the first of many, as, as I think the announcer says, the first of his race to be nominated. Well, uh, it, it was a long time coming to say the least. And Thurgood Marshall was one of the most uh, remarkable attorneys uh, of his time, regardless of race, uh, responsible for, for uh, arguing cases before the Supreme Court, certainly eminently qualified to make that appointment. And Lyndon Johnson often used his office to break down barriers and to make appointments. So that made sense. But, of course, the language seems archaic and the, the, the use of the music and so forth seems uh, melodramatic or over-the-top. So it's, uh, it, it makes you wince a little bit. And, of course, oh. the use of the term Negro, which we don't use much anymore, uh, was more common during that time. I think uh, Thurgood Marshall generally referred to himself uh, as a Negro. It was a term that he had used uh, throughout most of his life. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, uh, 
Tim Walsh is with us, Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum, a presidential historian. We turn to Tim uh, often when we want uh, our news uh, put into some historical context, and here it's a especially instructive. Um, we'll get to it, I think, a little bit later uh, from some corners, uh, uh, criticism of President Biden for um, promising to name um, a, he did this in his campaign, promising to name the first black woman to the nation's high court. But let's let's uh, continue to work through the late 20th century here. When we move from 1967, where do we see the next um, introduction of um, a first on the Supreme Court? The, the next first and the most logical uh, question was, why did it take so long to appoint a woman to the court? And, and of course, it was uh, perhaps... Something of a surprise, Lyndon Johnson, I don't believe, had another appointment. I cannot recall whether he did. But it was Ronald Reagan who, during the campaign in 1980, promised to appoint a woman to the court if he were to be elected president and have a vacancy. And he fulfilled that promise in 1981 with the appointment of Sandra Day O'Connor of Arizona to serve on the court. Interestingly enough, she had finished first in her law school class at Stanford, uh, and I believe the chief justice at the time, William Rehnquist, had finished second or third in that class. So there was no question that Sandra Day O'Connor had the the uh, firepower as an intellect uh, to serve on the high court. Uh, she was one of the only justices, maybe the only justice, to have served uh, in elective office. She had served in, in state office in Arizona. So uh, she made a, 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 it was a good choice. She was from the West, which also uh, brought uh, a refreshing uh, reintroduction of, of Western appointees to the court because so many have come from east of the Mississippi River. So, mm-hmm. so Sandra Day O'Connor in 1981 as our first woman. Uh, since that time, uh, we have let, had... Let me, of, let, me, let me break in here, Tim. We, uh, yep. I want to interrupt you for a moment, please, uh, with some archive audio from what you just mentioned. August of 1981. This is early in the Reagan administration. Um, uh, this is part of his announcement uh, nominating Sandra Day O'Connor to be the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. As the press has accurately pointed out, during my campaign for the presidency, I made a commitment that one of my first appointments to the Supreme Court vacancy would be the most qualified woman that I could possibly find. Now, this is not to say that I would appoint a woman merely to do so. That would not be fair to women, nor to future generations of all Americans whose lives are so deeply affected by decisions of the court. Rather, I pledge to appoint a woman who meets the very high standards that I demand of all court appointees. I have identified such a person. So today, I'm pleased to announce that upon completion of all the necessary checks by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, I will send to the Senate the nomination of Judge Sandra Day O'Connor of Arizona Court of Appeals for confirmation as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. She is truly a person for all seasons, possessing those unique qualities of temperament, fairness, intellectual capacity, and devotion to the public good, which have characterized the 101 brethren who have preceded her. I commend her to you, and I urge the Senate's swift bipartisan confirmation so that as soon as possible she may take her seat on the court 
and her place in history. Then President Reagan in August of 1981. Um, interesting there, the terms, the language he used in setting up that nomination, uh, Tim Walsh, not merely, great pains taken to say that it is not merely because she's a woman. That's that's true. And in fact, if you go back and uh, re-listen to the uh, Lyndon Johnson nomination of Thurgood Marshall. The idea was always they're among the very best, and I really didn't. I, I considered race or I considered gender, but above all, I wanted to make sure they were the very best. Well, that is true, but it's also true that the fact that they were uh, African American or they were a woman was an important uh, ingredient in the, the the mix that that led to their their selection. So okay, it, after, after 1981, uh, where does our our march uh, toward more uh, diverse uh, high court go from there. Well, what's what's interesting after 1981, of course, is is the real question is what do we what choices do we begin to consider as firsts? Uh, I suppose the next first would be uh, Antonin Scalia, who was the first Italian American uh, chosen for the court. I think it was 1986. We've had Irish and German uh, members of the court, but as I said earlier, so many of them were from Northern European, predominantly British heritage, that by having an Italian, uh, it, was, it was a remarkable event. We've had two Italians. Uh, Samuel Alito is the, the current Italian-American. It's, it's not a, quote, seat. It's not designated for an Italian-American. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have had both Scalia and, uh, and Alito on the court. We've never had a Slavic member on the court. Mm. Uh, and there are many religious groups that have never been represented on the court. As I said, we've had 15 Catholics, and we currently have a court that has a majority of Catholics which uh, those who know your history know back in the 19th century uh, there was a lot of apprehension about Catholics, whether they could be loyal to the country or to be too loyal to the Pope. And now we have six justices of the Supreme Court who are of Catholic heritage or Catholic faith. So um, we know uh, what was uh, once a minority, that is the Catholic religion, is now the majority on the court. So after Alito, we've had several more women added to the the court as, if not firsts, you might consider them seconds or thirds or or, or whatever. You had Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And one of the questions that came up when you had two women on the court is, would these women think alike and vote alike? And quite frankly, their judicial philosophies were very different, and they were no more inclined to vote with one another, uh, actually, they were really more inclined to vote with people who shared their common judicial philosophy. Mm-hmm. So and, that uh, no longer became and, and so we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, right. deceased, uh, the first female Jewish justice, but uh, currently serving the second Jewish woman and, on the court, Elena that's Kagan. Right. Elena that's K- right. And the, the first Jewish justice at the time was Louis Brandeis, going back to 1916. Very controversial at the time both because of anti-Semitism and because he was very much a liberal on the court, but he served for, for several decades. And then, in addition, uh, Herbert Hoover, there's, here's a little bit of an Iowa connection, appointed Benjamin Cardozo to the court, who was Jewish, a Sephardic Jew, but he was also of what you might call Hispanic or Iberian heritage. His parents were Portuguese, mm. and so the question is, is he really the first Hispanic on the court? The uh, that honor, so to speak, has been given to Sonia Sotomayor, uh, who was appointed uh, by uh, uh, President uh, uh, 
uh, Obama. And, and, and so generally because she is of Hispanic or Spanish heritage, Cardozo was of Portuguese heritage. It's, a, it's kind, of a, kind of a parlor game to decide who, who you consider the first uh, Spanish justice. The interesting thing about Cardozo was not so much whether he was Jewish or whether he was Spanish, but it was that he was from New York. And the concern was that we would have too many justices from New York State. Hmm. So there again, region becomes, it remains important because what state you're appointed from and the support of your senators can make a difference. And uh, you just never know, you know, what, whatever the, the politics are at the time will affect uh, the public reaction to that particular nominee. Right. And and you've driven right up to the point I want to end this conversation because I mentioned at the outset reaction to President Biden promising to name the first black uh, female justice to the high court, uh, gathering some criticism. Um, I wanted to play a clip of pointed criticism uh, that we've heard in the past few days uh, from Senator Ted Cruz in, in Texas. Uh, let's listen to his reaction. The fact that he's willing to make a promise at the outset that it must be a black woman, I got to say that's offensive. Right. You know, you right. know black women are what, 6% of the U.S. population? <laughs> he's saying to 94% of Americans, I don't give a damn about you. You are ineligible. And he's also saying it's actually an insult to black women. If, if he came and said, I'm going to put the best jurist on the court, and, and he looked at a number of people and he ended up nominating a black woman, he, he could credibly say, okay, I'm nominating the person who's most qualified. He's not right. even pretending to say that. He, he's saying, if you're a white guy, tough luck. Okay. Um, offensive is the word Ted Cruz used in, in Biden's promise to, to um, fill that seat with a, a black woman for the first time in U.S. history. Uh, how do you... How do you react to that with the historical context that we've had, especially we heard Reagan uh, refer to his campaign promise that he would put a woman on the court for the first time in which in in the first first time in history, which he did. Right. Indeed. And let me say again, 110 of those 115 justices appointed to the court have been white men. So I I don't think too many white men would be offended by the fact that a non-white man who might might be considered it's also true when President Biden has suggested that he's going to pick a, a, a black woman. Remember, this is a person who is both black and a woman and represents, in effect, a majority of the country, if you count all the women and all the people of color uh, in that mix. So uh, it's hardly just that 6% that Ted uh, Cruz makes reference to. But he's using this as a political wedge to, to score some political points. And it does underscore the fact that the appointment and uh, approval process is a political uh, action. And so we are going to see pushback from some people. Uh, there, for example, has been an interesting discussion of late. Uh, Lindsey Graham, again, Republican of South Carolina, Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, along with James Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina, are, are advancing a candidacy for an African-American uh, judge from South Carolina uh, to be appointed to the court so that, again, trying to bring in support for their particular candidate 
is uh, not untypical in this whole process. It's safe to say, isn't it, Tim, with these firsts, we go back to Thurgood Marshall, there would have been numerous critics we can guess of of appointing a black man to the high court for the first time. There was terrible resistance. I don't know what the vote was, but there was terrible resistance from the South to the whole idea of having an African-American on the court. It is shocking to us now when you live in the present, when we talk about affirmative action or we talk about gender balance or we talk about uh, uh, black lives mattering and, and and taking conscious of, of, of what it means to, to be aware of what race and racism are, that people were so hostile or so racist in, those, in the context of those times. Okay. A very quick comment. We only have 30 seconds. Has age ever been an issue here when selecting these uh, court well, the appointments? Well, young, the youngest Supreme Court just ever appointed to the court was 32 years old, and that was Joseph Story, who's generally considered one of the better justices, and he lasted 33 years. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, another of the great justices, didn't retire from the court until he was 91 years old. So uh, age, generally speaking, has not been too much of a concern. seems even less so now with very uh, much uh, having presidential candidates who are older. So I wouldn't think that that would be so much of an issue as, as gender or race or geography. Tim Walsh, as always, you are a fountain of historical knowledge that we can use to put our news in context. Tim Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum and our presidential historian, thank you, Tim, for taking the time to research that and sharing it with us. Thanks, man. Glad to do it. This half hour, we've been listening back to a conversation I had in February of 2022 that focused on U.S. Supreme Court firsts. Now, when we first aired this segment, President Biden had just announced he would fill the vacancy created by the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer with the high court's first black woman. But he had not yet named Ketanji Brown Jackson. Tomorrow on this program, you can join us for a live politics day with political scientists Donna Hoffman and Jonathan Hasid. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Today's program, produced by Sam McIntosh and Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.